This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. This month, we're featuring a series called 2019 A Look Ahead, and today we're going to turn our focus to the environment and climate change. Last year, a number of reports, including the federal government's National Climate Assessment, as well as the United Nations report, showed that climate change is already having a significant impact around the world and that unprecedented actions to cut carbon emissions will have to be done over the next decade. The last two years have seen some of the worst uh, incidents on record for deadly natural disasters with the California wildfires, hurricanes, and tsunamis. Business leaders also seem to be focusing more on the dangers posed by climate and environmental issues, and it's even more on the mind of those meeting at the World Economic Forum in Davos. But as President Trump uh, pulled the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Accord and has been reversing uh, many of the Obama-era policies aimed at reducing carbon emissions, it may end up being uh, in the lap of Congress to do more with this issue. But the big question is, will they? As for what should be done, we're joined here in studio by Eric Ortz, Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics here at the Wharton School and also Faculty Director of the Initiative for Global Environmental Leadership. And also with us is Dr. Felix Mormon, Law Professor at Texas A&M University, as well as Faculty Fellow at Stanford University's uh, Center for Energy Policy and Finance. Eric, great seeing you again. Good to see you, too. Felix, great to have you back on the show. Great to be here, Dan. Thank you. Uh, the most, when you look at 2018, Eric, the most telling things about the areas of the environment and climate change were probably what for you? I'm afraid that uh, for the most part, the most telling, uh, the, mo- for the biggest problem and the, and the biggest event was the U.S. basically not doing anything and deciding to reverse uh, itself. And so you look at, uh, there really aren't, uh, you start. You started out indicating, and 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 it's true that the uh, the biggest news is the the impacts. So there there's almost no really good news on what the human species is doing about the problem to try to deal with it. But unfortunately, there's some big news about what's happened. So if you just look at the biggest uh, the biggest cost of what happened, um, the California's campfire, which you start out with, that was the biggest. Uh, disaster that the world had it was a, it's uh, came in at about sixteen point five sixteen point five billion dollar cost. Hurricane Michael, which hit the Panhandle of Florida, was at sixteen billion. Uh, Florence hitting the Carolinas was fourteen billion, and you also mentioned in Japan, uh, Typhoon Jebby was at twelve point five billion. So you know, just do the math. This yeah. is this is big costs. It's not hypothetical. Uh, these. Um, all these cases, you you have current hurricanes anyway, but it is now uh, uh, known as a scientific virtual certainty. You can never be virtually certain. You can never be completely certain about anything in science. But the best science now is overwhelmingly in favor of saying these kinds of events, wildfires, hurricanes, heat waves, droughts, are being exacerbated by our climate change situation. So we have to start to believe the science. And I don't really see a lot of turnaround right now, unfortunately, 
we're you know we're bog you know we have the media is completely full of all the antics in Washington, yeah. and we're not getting down to talk about actual uh, the actual problems. I mean, in the show, uh, I believe last week or uh, was it last week or two, a couple of weeks ago, we had Senator Coons on. Yes, yeah, and yeah. Uh, there are ideas out there. There are there are politicians ready to move this forward, but right now in the United States, you don't have uh, any consensus on this issue. And if you look that, right. if the U.S. is not leading the world, you also are seeing retrenchment in the world. And carbon emissions have started to rise uh, uh, again. We were, look like, uh, so, so it's not surprising, given the lack of action, that people have, that, that we've started to see increasing problems. And we, we can, if we don't get it together, we're only going to see worse problems in the future. So we got to get ready for that. Felix, how, how do you view 2018 and, and the things that really stood out to you? So I share um, Eric's skepticism, obviously. If we, if we look at what we've seen unfold in terms of disasters, it's, it's, it's a grim picture. It's actually, in terms of sheer numbers, not as grim as 2017 was. That's true. But that's just because we've had some individual events in 2017, Hurricane Harvey uh, leading the charge here, that drove up the numbers that the reinsurance companies gave us in terms of total damages to even higher than 2018. But that's not to say that 2018 was a great year. And more importantly, we just need to understand that it's the frequency of these severe weather winds that's just gone way up. I mean, we, we keep getting uh, once-a-century hurricanes, and we, we're getting them at a frequency of probably more than once a decade these days. And that should give us pause. Now, <clears throat> I think Eric did a great job of teasing out everything that's, that's really cause for concern. So maybe I'm, I'm going to shift gears a little bit and talk about some silver linings that I've identified uh, looking back over 2018. And I think it's um, part of it is Katowice, the, uh, the COP24. Uh, I was surprised to see that the rule book actually moved forward to the extent that it did, because I think going into the United Nations um, Conference of the Parties, we we didn't expect that there would be that much consensus available. Right. So I think that gives me gives me hope, especially as we see at a national level more and more nationalist uh, electoral victories, so that there is a sense of international community still alive. And then that that continues to be nurtured gives me cause for for mild hope. And also, you know, with the federal level these days being pretty much a notion when it comes to climate policy, it's interesting to see how other fora are picking up the slack. So at the state level, at the regional level, even at the municipal level. And again, this uh, gives me some hope. But at the end of the day, there's so much to be done that we're wasting time. I mean, every day that we're not taking action is a day lost, and is a day that means whatever action we will take eventually has to be that much more forceful, that much more meaningful, and that much more concerted. But you, you bring up a good point, Felix, about the, the difference between the action being done at the state level and the non-action being done at the federal level. Mm-hmm. And, and it really is the case in point right now, Felix, that... We have so much dysfunction going on in Washington, D.C. right now on Capitol Hill that I don't think we can have an expectation of anything getting done at the federal level. And it really does become incumbent if there is going to be change on whatever issue it may be, climate change, environment, whatever, or many other things, that that it's probably going to have to come from the state level, Felix. I think that's a fair assessment. Um, Now, it's a shame because when you think back much further than 2018, there was a time when environmental issues were nonpartisan issues. I mean, back in the 1970s, it was this was an easy area for parties to agree on. 
This is how we got all those great statutes, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, etc. And now the environment has become one of the most polarizing issues. And I don't think it has to be, because realistically, when you look at some of the alliances forming, you mentioned, or Eric mentioned, Senator Coons earlier on, yeah. who's, who's done some great work uh, to promote clean energy. His Masculine Partnerships Parity Act is, is a wonderful piece of legislation. And that piece is actually supported by a wide range of bipartisan politicians. And I think it just shows that at the end of the day, at least at the state level, there are a lot of states who care for wind energy. Do they all care for the same reasons? Probably not, but they don't have to. Even if you don't believe in climate change, which would be hard for me to understand, but if you believe in job creation, you might still sign on to these pieces of legislation. So I'm really hoping we can we can move a little bit beyond the polarization and, and, and try to really focus on the merits. Eric? Yeah, well, I would agree with that. If you have a sense of history, it's true that this was a bipartisan issue in the 70s, 80s. But also, uh, when I first got into this was in 1992 when went to the Rio Earth Summit in uh, in Rio de Janeiro. And uh, George Bush I was there and was uh, was on board with, with climate change, was a leader in coming and in, in setting forward some basic international agreements with that. And whatever for whatever reasons, uh, we've now it's now become a polarized issue, and and I yeah. think we need to stop worrying about who to blame about why that happened. But there is unfortunately now it is clear that there is one party, and it you can't be unpartisan about it because there's one party that is now denying the science, and so. Um, if you do a poll, the two thirds of the a recent poll said two thirds of the American public want to do more on climate change. So the public opinion is shifting on this. But you have in power a group that is against the science. And we, um, uh, if you're going to get move forward on this, uh, yeah, you can do a lot at the state level. Businesses can do a lot, mm-hmm. but there is a blocking point where you need to get the. Uh, the federal government, there has to be a regime change. And if that comes by the Republicans changing on this issue, that's one way to do it. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, uh, it has to be made a major issue. And I think um, one of my uh, colleagues, I've mentioned this paper on here before, has written about uh, corporate political responsibility, where yeah. in some cases, if you're talking about this kind of civilization changing issue, you got to get off the dime and really and see the issue and get involved. Now, just uh, just for the for the listeners, just to kind of highlight this, and and there is a failure of imagination. There's there's two novels uh, that that I'd recommend. My my son just recommended this to me, and I just read it. Uh, <laughs> it's by Omar El Akkad called American War, and it's in it, it's set into it, it, the the book came out in 2017, and then an older set of uh, of novels is by Octavia Butler. Uh, uh, the parable of the sower and the parable of the talents. And what's what's interesting about the, what these are is dystopian future novels. This is the world that you could get yeah. if you uh, if you don't handle this issue, and that is what we're failing to recognize. Yeah. Somehow, you know, when you get attacked in a war, then everybody mobilizes because you see the threat. Right. The problem here is that. You can't mobilize because if you don't believe the scientists telling you this, if you can't envision what's actually hitting you, 
you can't mobilize uh, public opinion. And I think it's starting, my hope is it's starting to finally hit, right? When right. you see these wildfires and you see hurricanes hitting, and it's not just one year it hits Texas. The next year it's hitting Florida. The next year it's hitting, you know, same year it's hitting Carolina. What, you know, it's hitting, it hit Puerto Rico, uh, yeah, another one hitting Puerto Rico. What are you going to have? An, at some point, I think people wake up and you say, it's here. Right. right, it's not just some future thing that hey, maybe we should do something for our grandchildren. It is here now, and it's even going to be worse for the grandchildren than you can imagine if we don't get off the dime and actually get active well, and, and do something about it. Felix, I, I think there's also an element that that I wanted to bring up about the the corporate community and, and the role that they could play uh, in this, and maybe not necessarily when you're talking about something like a hurricane or a tsunami, but when we're talking about the wildfires that occurred in California, obviously. One the one company that is associated with that uh, those events on the negative side is PG and E, and the fact that PG and E may very well be filing for bankruptcy yeah. by the by the end of the month. And so, for a company like PG and E, which you know needs to invest in different ways of of thinking about energy transmission, other avenues to be able to do that, uh, it, that's an important component. And I think other companies can can jump on board with that. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I think, again, uh, somehow I end up trying to draw attention to the silver linings. That, you know, was one of the best messages for me to come out of 2018 in this context. It's the fact that we had so many vocal advocates among the corporate world who, who try to, you know, draw attention to these issues and really advocate for solutions, including carbon pricing, whether it's carbon taxation or a cap and trade regime. Yeah. And and so I think, I think that gives cost for but it's proof of what you just mentioned. These events are hitting, and they're hitting hard, and they're causing actual dollar value losses. Right, and that's no longer an esoteric problem. This is not about a cute polar bear that we see on a melting, you know, patch of ice. This is about companies that we tend to think of as bankruptcy proof. When I teach energy law, um, we usually discuss that electric utilities are essentially bankruptcy proof because they pretty much have guaranteed earnings depending on the market regulation under which they operate. Right. But in the case of PG&E, this is just, I mean, the, the damage, the liability they've incurred is multiple times that what they can make on a yearly basis. So, of course, at some point you realize the magnitude of this problem is just too big for even one of the most successful and, in theory, one of the most secure companies in this country to shoulder. And so I, I think we're going to see more of that. And the other part to it is then if you continue the trickle-down effect on that, Felix, uh, you also have to bring into the discussion the insurance industry, which yeah. is obviously paying out sums of money that, uh, that I, I would venture, I guess, if you talk to somebody that is a, a lifer in the insurance industry, 20 years ago, they would have never assumed that they would be paying the amounts that they're paying right now on the recovery costs of, of some of these storms. And, of course, if you know that the insurance industry is paying more, eventually the consumer is going to be paying more. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think we're, we're seeing that trickle-down effect already. Um, PG&E's insurance coverage, to, from what I remember, was $1 billion worth of liability. Right. Now, a $1 billion liability policy sounds like a pretty good buffer. sounds like a pretty good protection um, and you can imagine that the premium on that must have been pretty high. Yeah. But the fact that the actual liabilities are orders of magnitude higher, now that is a problem. And, and talk about trickle-down effect. We're seeing this not just in the big corporate scenario. We're seeing this already at the homeownership question. We're seeing this where um, flood insurance is, be 
becoming more and more difficult to obtain. Yeah. Um, if at all available, it's becoming more and more costly. This has been the case in some traditionally threatened areas for a long time. If you go to South Florida, depending on where you are, um, you might not be able to get insurance at all, or you would get insurance at an extremely high premium. But we're now seeing this emerge in areas that have not even been zoned as flood-threatened zones just yet, because FEMA does these zoning every five years. And so take what happened in Houston. Most of these homes would not have been considered at risk, which is why right. Hurricane Harvey was such an issue, because nobody had flood insurance. Right. Now people may want to get it, but suddenly the premium can be six, eight, ten thousand dollars $10,000 a year. We're joined uh, on the phone by Felix Mormon of Texas A&M University. You're in studio by Eric Ortz of the Wharton School. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. The other part to it, Eric, it, it, on, on the secondary costs uh, are the issues of infrastructure and farming and, and the impact that a lot of these elements are, are, are feeling. When you think about when the hurricane hit North Carolina, there were various farms, pig farms, that uh, had all of this waste that ended up floating into rivers because those farms, even with protection, were being flooded. So you've you've got a lot of extra cost that is being added on in a variety of different different fronts, roads, bridges, etc. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's coming home to many businesses. I think there has been a reticence for businesses to become active on trying to handle this issue because some of these issues are collective action issues. You just you can't fix uh, flood insurance and you can't fix the infrastructure problems or housing, housing, making housing more resilient without making a partnership with government. So we do have to get off the uh, off this idea that somehow government's the enemy and we'll be fine if, if you just let the free market rip. I think that's just an ideology that if you look at this particular problem, you got to you got to move past that. And I think a lot of businesses are seeing that. You're right about farmers. You know, our, our amber waves of grain are being subject to drought. <laughs> yeah. Right. Our our sea of our shining seas are becoming the source of this destructive impact. So there's this. This idea that we just industrialize our way back to greatness somehow, but America isn't, you know, the, the threat is if you make America great by the old methods, it's not going to be very beautiful, right? Yeah. So that's that's the that's the challenge, I think. And and you're right, there are a lot of businesses are starting to see this, I think, with the experiences. And then the question is, will they be able to mobilize to really try to help uh, adopt mitigation effects, you know, right. get behind? serious programs, help to change one of the parties to become uh, more science-oriented again and to, see, and, and to come to some bipartisan agreements or, or not. And um, I think that's, uh, they, that's, one of the, that's one of the maybe bright sides is that you start to see some of those, some of those uh, other businesses appreciating the effects of this and then uh, starting, to, starting to make some kind of change. I mean, it's, it's difficult. One, one other way to think about this is I, I sometimes think of this as you know, climate change is like death. Nobody really wants to think about it, right? Because True. it's not yeah. a yeah. nice topic. That's yeah. why I mentioned these dystopian novels. They're not going to be fun to read necessarily. Yeah. But it's at some point it is a reality, just like death is a reality, and we have got to face up to it. And I think that's another question I'd like to pose out or throw out there for businesses. And I've actually thrown this out to insurance companies at one event. But we need to – how about a public relations uh, campaign that is 
from businesses who really get it and see this as an issue right. to try to convince people that this is real and we all have to do something about it. I mean, that, there's no reticence on the on the part of fossil fuel companies. And unfortunately, if you just look at the valuation of the carbon assets that are out there, Wall Street is saying you're going to burn them. So the best the best money out there is betting that you're just going to continue with this problem until right. you start to say there's really going to be a hit on that. The only way you get that is by regulation. Otherwise, if there's no regulation, Russia, uh, China, the U.S., everybody can burn as much coal and as much oil as they want to forever. Right. Then you can't get a you can't get you actually can't solve the problem. That's the that's the that's the reality of it, and it's a. We need to come back to Paris, and we uh, there are other ways to help solve that. So one is business innovation, and and solar energy is dropping in terms of its cost. So yeah. in many situations, uh, solar is cheaper than coal. Okay, so there is a there are vectors here where you see positive um, events that could take place where business change will overcome the the problem. But it can't be only business; it has to be. Also, government, and in, in today's world, business has to get involved with helping government to get to the right place on this issue, right. in my view. Felix? I agree. I think uh, it's nice to see a lot of businesses embrace this area as an area of opportunity, because it is. Just as Eric was saying, it's not just solar. It's energy storage. It's energy efficiency. It's wind energy. There are so many business opportunities out there. If you look at the job creation numbers... These are the industries that are leading the charge, that are really offering a lot of opportunities, a lot of potential for growth, and have done so for years, if not decades. So that's really, really good news. And yet, we're not moving the needle as fast as we need to be moving it. And this is, I think, where indeed regulatory nudges will be required. It's telling to me that even when you control over $30 trillion worth of assets, and that's the group investors that came out last fall to say, hey, we need to do something about carbon emissions. The fact that they issued this call for regulatory, for government action, suggests to me that even they felt helpless right. to some extent, that they alone couldn't do enough. And I mean, this is these are powerhouses. These are the big names in the industry. So I, I think it's great. I also don't want to just point to top-down action. I think we need to all remember Eleanor Ostrom and her polycentric governance models, the fact that you can come at this from all directions, and that even grassroots movements can play a part here. I thought it was brilliant when we saw that Shell eventually agreed to do more about carbon emissions, and it was largely through pressure from, yes, some of their major shareholders, but also just, you know, activist groups. And suddenly, the, the bonus payments to their executives are tied, among other things, to carbon emissions, which I think sends a great signal to say, hey, you cannot ignore this problem any longer. We're going to make it part of your personal bottom line and the company's bottom line. So I think we're going to have to mobilize at virtually all levels if we want to make headway on this. I mentioned the the climate assessment report uh, a little earlier, Felix, and, and obviously, we, as we've talked about the dynamic in Washington, D.C., the unfortunate thing is this information comes out, but again, it doesn't feel like it's going to go anywhere, at, at least in the next year or two. I'm afraid you're right. I'm afraid that it has fallen on deaf ears, pretty much, um, and, and the fact that it's even uh, been discredited uh, as pseudoscience, et cetera, is even more worrisome. Um, 
I, I think we will eventually agree, and everybody will hopefully agree, that this was a wake-up call that we better heed. But we are losing precious time. I, I think you're right. I think right now Washington is just spending too much time with an introspective and is not really acting the part that I think we all hoped that our elected leaders would act. Eric? Yeah, well, I think that's right. I mean, I think um, th- when we're talking about science, we should be careful not to repeat scientific myths. And there are two I'll just throw out here. One is that ostriches put their head in the sand. The truth is they don't put their head in the sand. Yeah. The other one is that uh, if you put a frog in water and you gradually turn up the heat until it boils, the frog doesn't get out of the water. It dies. That's not true. <laughs> Actually, the, yeah. frog, the frog jumps out of the water. But the, you know, the analogy for me then is the water is warming up and humanity has to basically jump out. You have to, you have to, you have to get active. And it's not an easy problem, um, but I think that uh, as we've all been saying, you have to be able to identify where you can be active, where it might make a difference. Right. So it's not enough, for example, for businesses to look at their own operations and then say, "Okay, let's be let's be carbon, let's reduce our carbon, and let's let's play, let's be a good citizen and w- internally just to our business." Right. The argument I'm making is that if you look at where we are, you have to do more than that. You have to actually go out and say, "Where can we help to put a." Uh, put some pressure on the system or to change right. that is actually going to help us to to move forward on the on the issue in a global way. I think there unfortunately it's too bad that um, it's too bad that some of the Trump administration people are not going to Davos because as you, as you mentioned at the top, uh, five or six of the top risks in the world, according to uh, the experts who are going to be talking about risks in Davos, are climate related in one way or right, another. Right. Uh, water shortages. Um, these extreme weather events, which we've been talking about, are number one almost on all the charts. The failure to have mitigation and adaptation strategies. Uh, so all those things are are up there, and um, and I think everyone just has to try to say, look, this is very serious, and we have to uh, be optimistic, at least in the way of trying to make make sure that we're active, but at, be active with a view that you can really change. Right. Because I think literally, like you have, as you said also at the top, experts are telling us we have like a 10 to 12-year window now. Sure. It has yeah. closed quickly since the Earth Summit in 1992 when we were first identifying this as a major world issue. We haven't really done anything serious Right. about that. We have some templates in place, but we go back and forth. And the, the window's closing. There's not really a lot of time left. And then, you know, 10 years from now, 10, 10 years from now, if we just don't do anything, we better start reading the dystopian books that I just talked sure. about, because that's yeah. what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to talk about, we're not about a uh, a wall on the border. It's going to, a wall on the border is not going to stop the number of people coming North, uh, your your whole your society gets destroyed if you right. don't start to do something about it, and I think that's a very hard pe- hard thing for people to understand. But we need to start to understand it if we're going to do anything uh, about it. Great having you both with us today. Thank you, Eric. All the best, Felix. Thank you for your time today. My pleasure. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 